0: My husband likes to tell a story about one of the conversations we had soon after we met. We were in that dump your whole life's history time in a relationship, when you figure all of your stories are good stories. Giddy with acceptance. We were talking about our responses to conflict in our lives. And in a moment of good-natured humor, I said, oh, I only fight when I know that I'm right. I know. I know, (laughs) but what I know now after years of reflection and also a little study of the Enneagram is that I'm a one on the Enneagram. I'm a reformer. I try to get things right, do the right things and change or influence people and environments based on my version of integrity. I think it should be everyone's version, so I get it wrong a lot. Reformers are also critics, so sometimes I get caught up in what I did or said that wasn't right, and I really worry about what to do next, the next right thing. Hi, everyone. I'm Serena Hicks, and you are listening to the EdMoves podcast. Today on our podcast, Dr. Kim Jackson shares the wisdom of the next right thing. How do we move forward together as a learning and teaching community when there's so many pressures and possibilities? How do we move with integrity? Kim and I banter about public opinion around education, about letting students lead the choice around technology tools, about building student identity and the power of a problem-based approach to teaching. Kim has practical ideas for how students can be seen and heard even behind a computer screen. And she believes the hope of a bright future lies partly in our ability to innovate. This episode is full of powerful reminders about who should be in charge of learning and how to get out of our own way and defer to the experts, our students. Edmu's listeners, Kim Jackson. Jackson, welcome to the Ed Moose podcast. Thanks for having me, Serena. I have been reading a lot of your work lately because a lot of your words are resonating with me, and I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I know your school year is really busy and just got started, so I appreciate you setting aside some time to chat with me. Oh, happy to appreciate can, it. Yeah, can you? <laughs> um, I know that we visited just um, a little bit prior to starting. The recording, but I would love for you to tell the Edmonds listeners just a little bit about you, where you are, what you do, what's your day job. <laughs> so, Kim Jackson, uh, and I'm a professor
1: of English at California State University, Chico, which is in Northern California, uh, a couple hours north of Sacramento, rural, pretty rural area. Uh, I think a lot about literacy. I'm a literacy scholar, and I'm very Uh, drawn to thinking about digital literacies. So I'm interested in, for example, things like the hashtag (laughs) as kind of a profound symbol in this moment in time. Um, Wow, how could one little, you know, symbol do so much in the world for both, you know, good and sometimes problematic, right? So um, uh, that's a lot of what I do. I dabble a little bit in things like um, working with students around game design and how that works in classroom design and i um, really interested in things like science writing and how people learn to write in different communities of practice so those are kind of the spaces that I inhabit and think about that's all the spaces that's a lot of spaces yeah, no, <laughs> you know it's because writing ends up being kind of this ubiquitous thing
0: right so uh, you know yeah up teaching of writing it touches so many areas right Yes. And that is actually what brought me to your work. I had heard your name around National Writing Project circles um, because I'm a writing project fellow. And so I had heard your name there. And then a recent blog that you wrote was popping around the hashtag sphere, the interweb. Yes. web. <laughs> <Right>. And <clears throat> what brought me to your work actually was your writing. And then the blog post that that uh, most recently brought me to your work pulled me in because of the writing but then as you're saying it dabbled in all of these other topics about literacy and, and access to technology so i that's the direction i kind of want to go in having a conversation if if you're cool. okay with that um, yeah cool the the first thing that made me continue um reading the the long form blog post that you published was the statement that you made every educator I know is trying to get this moment right. And, <laughs> and it hooked me because that had been, has been my struggle that I'm, I'm trying to get it right. And, and I don't know what right is. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, talk to me a little bit about that, because I keep thinking about how we figure out what right is and what right means. So what were you, what were you thinking about when you, yeah, I,
1: I think all of it, Right. I, I, I can hear it even when when you and I are talking a little while ago that I think we are because of our compassion for our students and because of our compassion for our spaces that we work in, we we don't want to do more harm. Right. We are trying to function like first do no harm way of working. Yeah. Um, and and so that comes with a lot of anxiety for us. Right. That we we. We are so proximate to our students, so we can see the the many, many, many things going on around them, like um, students who don't have Wi-Fi or students who don't have a laptop or a colleague who doesn't have a camera in their computer. Or, right, so we see all these material things going, and we're thinking, how do we make that right? You know, how do we make Mm. this all of a sudden this access and equity thing is so right in front of us. Right. That that was always there. But now becomes even, I think, more like right in front. Um, And and because, you know, this because we care, it's it's making it much, much, much harder, I think, right now. Um, And then I think there's also for me, here's what's been really hard is if you've been thinking about digital pedagogy for a long time, this has been painful to watch because, um, <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, oh my gosh, here's an opportunity, right? To show like, oh, there's so many interesting things you could do if you understand digital tools or if you understand mm-hmm. digital pedagogy. And what we're watching is everyone like, who should have started to think about this 10 or 15 years ago, tr- trying to right now, and going through the same hurdles that some of us maybe already did a long time ago. Um, and yes. And I, and then there's, there, I have, I have huge frustration over that.
0: Like, gosh, this is what we should have been helping people do all along. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> Yes. And I want to, I want to deep dive into that, but something else that you said, I, I want to go back to, if that's okay, because I, yeah, I want to, I want to yeah. tell you a story about something that happened just a couple of hours ago and it's kind of tied to the whole idea of who are we right you're saying we're we're trying to figure it out, we're trying to figure it out, we're trying to get this moment right, but i'm I'm trying to figure out who who the we is so let me let me tell you the story, and I want yeah. you to comment on it. Um, I have a close friend and colleague who um, is teaching in the public schools, and she's a beautiful, amazing teacher, and she has a keyboard lab she's a choral teacher, and she has a keyboard lab, a small. Um, digital keyboard lab that is movable in her teaching space at her school. And she teaches a keyboard class. So when kids can be in school, which they aren't now in right. the area where I live, um, they they can access that keyboard class. And it's a diverse school. It's a school with a diverse population. So students are able to come in, access the keyboard, the piano, keyboard technology in the building. They've signed up for keyboarding classes. But because they're remote, they can't access the the digital pianos. And so she hit Facebook this morning because she's a lovely, beautiful, wonderful beautiful person and went crowdsourcing is like, hey, I, I need a handful of keyboards. I need to get them to our students in need. Who has some keyboards? I'll come pick them up. I'll distribute them. And immediately people have money and people can pick them up. And I've got one in my closet and they want to bring their digital technology to help my friend. And I popped on Facebook and I said, wait a minute. If we can distribute laptop computers to a district of thousands of students, why can we not distribute those 12 keyboards to the students who are enrolled in the class? Yeah. Wow. So, but everyone ignored my comment, which is okay. (laughs) That's okay. But all of the like 20 comments, please share this, make this shareable. I have money. How much do you need? I'll come bring it to you. I can get it to you today. And I thought... Who is the we?
1: Oh, that's so interesting, right? That is, that is, that's a great story for that because um, you're right. How much are we seeing, particularly in social media, I suppose, um, we had it happen here. I almost have an analogous story on a broader scale, which is, as we were mentioning before we jumped on our podcast, but. I live in an area where, you know, wildfires are a thing. And two years ago, we lost an entire community to the campfire. And now Mm -hmm. those same communities, right, are being affected. And we had a moment where we lost a lot of schools. And this community, talk about the we. um, I have a good friend who started something called Color a Classroom, which just said, you know, teachers don't have, they lost everything. They lost their books. They lost their markers. They lost rugs that their kindergartners sat on. Ugh. And the world rallied. I mean, it was, we had donations coming from everywhere to where we had to like open up a multipurpose room pre COVID, right? Everybody could come to a space. <laughs> and, wow. and the teachers were able to, so it it truly became a, uh, a shared global community responsibility to help with the education practices. And I, and you're, you know, we're certainly seeing a we. What's what's interesting about that too though, Serena, is the we, the you're really making me think. Like the we is also problematic in the sense that because everyone went through school, they think they know how to design school or they think mm. they know what teachers should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. And so the I think the getting it right, even back to that, has to do with how much schooling right now is so in in public right we are in everyone's living room (laughs) (laughs) literally actually in everyone's living room and so um I think there's a lot of um you know both taking some of the agency away from teachers for example that are happening either at an administrative level or a parent level or um, just a lot of critique, right? And so the, mm-hmm. the we gets loud. The we gets loud. There's a we that's going to help. Here, let me give you a material thing. And then there's the we that's like, let me tell you how to do this when it's teachers who probably know those 30 kids really well, you know, and might know more what they need. So... <sighs> I think it is a fascinating, if we could, if we could step back and not be traumatized, this is a very fascinating
0: <laughs> moment in time in education, right? So, yeah. If, if we could calm down enough to study it, yeah. we, might, we might learn something. Well, I think that's a little bit of a segue um, into one of the quotes that I've listed from the blog. Um, I think this is kind of a segue into that. And I want to read you a few things that you wrote in that blog that, um, by the way, I'm going to link into the program notes of this podcast so folks can read all of your amazing work. Um, But this is lifted right from your latest blog post, and I think it might be connected. You wrote, we're worrying so much about solving problems of schooling that we're forgetting to solve problems in our disciplines and in the world. Yeah. And when I read that, the first thing I thought was this shift from learning to doing that, at least in my world, the, the focus is about what what do I do rather right. than what students should learn. Right.
1: Right. So um, and I, I think any of us who are teaching right now know that we're getting bombarded. You know, I probably get, I don't know, three or four at least on a good day, <laughs> usually sometimes more emails a day from someone who's got something they want me to write. A packaged thing, a tool, a something, Mm. right? Here, let me give you a thing to help. And Mm -hmm. when I hear my, I work, because I work with a writing project, and because I work a lot with professional development on my campus, when I work with faculty, um, often the questions that those tools lead to are things like, how do I take attendance in this online space? Or how Mm -hmm. do I, what do I do about um, making sure they've read or, you know, there's all these like surveillance procedural, procedural mm-hmm. kind of that, that are, that are the problems of school. That Those are the problems of school. Those are not the problems I'm interested in working with my students on. And they certainly aren't the first thing that
0: mm-hmm. I want to think
1: about. Those are like secondary mm-hmm. <laughs> like, or mm-hmm. way down the road. How am I going to translate the schooling practice? And I also think it's a low hanging fruit, right? Like, if you've solved the problem of taking attendance, you can check that box, right? Oh, I did Uh it. So I understand the impulse to like, but this is a simple thing I can solve. Um, But I I do think there's got to be a step back and all the time, face-to-face or fully online and think about what identities are we offering to students so that they can take on through our different classes, what it means to be a historian, a scientist, a poet, a engineer, a nurse, whatever the thing is they're trying to pursue. Mm-hmm. And so does my classroom offer that? Does it do And in, and if you're, even with tool use in this digital moment, am I choosing tools that my discipline would recognize? You no, know, is mm-hmm. this, and sometimes quite frankly, that might be Facebook. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I have colleagues who are scientists who I see throw out science questions to their fellow yeah. colleagues, right, on a social media platform and they all weigh in on it. So it doesn't need oh, yeah, even, you know, right? It, it, I'm in several of those what's groups. What's the tool? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm in several of those groups and I'm like, oh, I got to get on my standards based grading site and see if anybody, oh, I got to get on my higher education learning collective yes. to see. Yeah.
1: Yes. So are we introducing students to those, to the platforms? that have the communities they hope to join. So, um, and then right now, gosh, what an opportunity for all of us um, students, us, everybody to be thinking about, yeah, I hope that the work that we're doing is impactful. And, and, you know, I know that's daunting, right? That can be a little overwhelming, but, but otherwise, what Mm -hmm. am I doing? Like, uh, I wanna yeah. get, like, what am I doing if, if the work that we're doing in class doesn't have some meaning in their lives right now? I mean, okay,
0: <laughs> I have to tell you this, I didn't tell you this before, I held this, I held this story back for me, but here's something I did, Okay. after I read um, the, the blog post, the one that I kind of referenced, and I'm going to read some other quotes from, I, I read it like six times and sent it to 12 people, because it impacted I'm me, it impacted me so much, because it was like a gut check, like, the hell are you doing right like get out of Padlet get out of Flipgrid stop building things and start thinking about the the disciplinary lens so I teach um a secondary social studies methods course in the fall and I'm, I'm teaching that right now and I went back to the drawing board with that course wow. after reading and rereading your blog post and and here's what I did I want to tell you what I did and what I'm so excited upset about it yeah <laughs> I I asked them to create a Venn diagram and I asked them on one side of the Venn diagram to list characteristics of being a historian because it's a social studies um, methods class. And then on the other side of the Venn diagram, I asked them to list the characteristics of being a teacher. And (sighs) then I asked them in the middle to consider where those two things interacted, where there might be tension, where there might be similarities and in the center to think, what does it mean to be a social studies teacher? And and then they wrote about it and it was, it was beautiful because they're like, huh, it was really different. I'm going to have to shift how I think about instruction because I have been seeing myself as a historian or wow, I see myself kind of the same. Like I want to be a his- I wanted to be a history teacher because I want to be a teacher. So this was really great exercise. But so many of them said, this was the coolest thing for me, Kim, and thank you for this. <laughs> so many of them said, No one's ever asked me that no one. I've been in college for four years. I'm getting ready to student teach and no one has ever asked me about my teacher identity. Oh, wow.
1: Wow. First of all, that is such a smart activity that you did. I'm completely stealing that just so you know, I stole it from you. So You (laughs) know, it's just upcycled. It's it's an upcycle. It's a (laughs) remake. No, I'm going to do that with my capstone English ed in the spring. What a, I just like the identity work that's going on. I mean, geez, I need to do that yeah. for myself, quite frankly. <laughs> right? What a great activity. Um, yeah. And it is, right, it is a, the, and my colleague who's at Boise, as you know, uh, Leslie Atkins Elliott, who is a mm-hmm. physicist, um, we talk all the time about, um, are you helping students to learn a, about a thing or are you helping them become the thing? Right, so mm-hmm. are they learning about history, or are they learning to become historians? Because those are yes. very different ways to approach your classroom design, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a content version or a why? Why do this at all? You know, why? Why do we want to be these things? So, uh, yeah, that's a cool activity, Serena. That was a cool
0: way to approach that. Well, when you borrow it and improve it, then you are obligated <laughs> to share. Absolutely. I got a little back and share forth. Share it back. It's good. Um, there's this intersection that you wrote about in the blog between disciplinary practice and technology and learning tools. And I want to I wanna jump into that a little bit, if that's okay. okay yeah, that's great. Um, Here's another quote from your blog. And I loved it because... It's controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said. Thank you for that. Yeah, you said we're allowing edtech to rule our choices. Lots of companies are ready to sell us solutions for problems we didn't know we had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know,
1: I, I see it as um, someone keeps trying to hand us a screwdriver when what I need is a hammer, right? Like they, mm. I and and I'm not even getting to take a breath to ask what's the problem in my, what's the problem of practice, right? What's the problem Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to solve in my teaching? I don't even know yet. I haven't even had a chance to ask the question and immediately someone's like, and, and you just said it right. Here's Flipgrid. Here's Padlet. Here's Kaltura. Here's zoom. Here's, you know, here's all these things. And, and it's interesting to me how that just becomes, you know, once someone says this worked for me, this thing, then all of a sudden, <laughs> like, oh, I'll use that too, without knowing mm-hmm. why, why are mm-hmm. you, why are you using that? Like, what's it doing for you? Um, and particularly, I, I think, you know, in higher ed, but certainly in K-12, you know, we've got a lot of reps pushing a lot of this will work for you. Um, and there's the controversial part, right? <laughs> it's the, mm-hmm. um, and now that becomes the thing that your school vets and kind of says, this, this is the tool we're using when there are a lot of tools that are not under school. Right. Probably a better tool, right. That just exist in the world that are out in the planet that are too big to fail in some ways, you know, YouTube, you know, those kinds of like, let's just use YouTube. YouTube's a thing on the planet. That's there Uh has all kinds (laughs) of issues. All of them have lots of issues, but you know, so, um, yeah, I get really frustrated with the uh, the tools focused approach to course design, um, and I and I get it. I get it's it's people are looking for a thing to do tomorrow because they're really nervous, and sometimes those tools provide a thing you can do tomorrow with your mm-hmm. students because um, it does take time to think what are what are my problem, what am I struggling with. I think uh, this comes for me. I think one a good example I could give is. I designed something totally blasphemous in my field, which is about 10 years ago, I designed a jumbo writing course. And so mm-hmm. we have 90 students in there with all these mentors. And I, and I did it on purpose. <laughs> so it's a whole other story. But I was trying to solve the problem of making sure students felt seen and heard in the mm-hmm. large class, right? And so there's the problem that you go from, okay, how do I make sure students are seen and heard? What are the ways I can do that both in the classroom and what's some digital platforms that might help me with students feeling seen and heard? So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, then you're then you're going after the digital platforms or technologies from a from a problem based approach. And you're thinking about offering a range that students can tap into. Maybe we're blogging. Maybe some students want to tweet. Maybe like what are the different ways that they can be seen and heard? So starting with that is sometimes a better way than here's a thing. (laughs) here's a thing i can use yeah
0: yeah and talk more a little bit about that because i know um that one of the solution that you just offered is to start from a, a problem-based approach what is the problem that i'm trying to solve and and start at it from a level of pedagogy what else would you recommend university faculty or or k-12 teachers do to step kind of outside or back behind the technology first is there another step after you've identified the problem then what yeah I mean
1: I I, that'd be good to hear you know what you think about this too but often when I start with a problem I just I think about um first I ask colleagues right that's the first thing I do is Mm -hmm. okay I'm worried about I I think one of the main things I'm getting asked right now is how do you build community online how do I maintain this sense of we're a class or a community together and so how do I solve that and, you know, one of the first things you end up doing is throwing that out to all your other colleagues and saying, mm-hmm. how are you all building community online? What are the things you do doing? And then I start making a list of all the ways people are approaching that. That's, that's one thing I actually do. And then I think about, um, okay, so what works in my face-to-face class is not necessarily going to translate, you know, to a digital environment. So I, I try to be really attentive to that, that you you have to design It doesn't scale. It doesn't transfer, right, in the same way. Mm -hmm. So you really do have to design for this other thing. Um, And so with digital, I think a lot, if one of the problems I'm worried about is that it's going to feel like school, that's a thing that bothers me. Like that would be a thing in my teaching. I'm always trying to think, does this feel like school? And uh, one of the first things I did with this semester was think, well, what are the things that I do online that are really things I do online? Like that are Mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. in my professional purview. One of the things I do is meet with colleagues to write together that are not on my campus. So we might jump on a Zoom or a Google Hangout or a Skype and check in and have a Google Doc and do some shared writing and come back together and give feedback. That's a thing that I do professionally. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a thing I can do professionally with my students. Virtual writing retreat. We're going to check in. We're going to all make sure we got a plan. We're going to go right for an hour, an hour and a half. And then we're going to come back and give some feedback. So um, when I'm thinking about problems, I think if we, in a nutshell, it like problems. And then I'm throwing that out to my colleagues. What are you doing for this problem? And then I'm trying to think about whatever space I'm in. What are some real things that I would do in that space as, as, yeah. a, as someone in my field? And how can I how,
0: offer that? You talk about disciplinary lens and disciplinary work quite a bit, but I know that you've worked on multidisciplinary teams and and across disciplines. So how how does talking to your colleagues and like you mentioned yeah. um Leslie elliott who who I now work with as a physicist and the two of you are writing collaborators and your background is is English language arts. So how how do we bridge that outside of you know my my own discipline what is what's the benefit of having those multidisciplinary yeah. conversations? Well, what's great about those, those dis- is,
1: you know, it's actually really hard for us to remember how we learn to do our discipline, right? Like it's, it, we become kind of like, I, I don't remember how I learned to be an English professor. It's been 20 years, you know, how did, what was, what was confusing to me in the beginning? And when you step into, and man, I would take every advantage of this when you can step into a new discipline or co- collaborate with someone, man, those things are not Apparent to you. It's all is confusing. You know, to step in for me to step into a course that was scientific inquiry with Leslie meant that, um, you know, a really simple thing like they use whiteboards. (laughs) 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 And they really can't do their work without a whiteboard. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they have to draw. It's visual, the visual interpretation. They are drawing all the time. Well, how fascinating is that? And, and then that helps me think even with my own students, okay, what are, and this is one of the things Leslie and I think about a lot is what are the informal practices? Am I making those available to my students? Like how to get to answers to something, for Mm -hmm. example. And so informal practices in my field might be a notebook or might be a Google doc or might be whatever. An informal practice in science might be a whiteboard or a scientific notebook or those kinds of things. So, um, it, it I I will say that talking to someone out of field about your discipline can often trigger things you've forgotten that are in your discipline. Like oh that's right we do do that differently. That is because we need to be able to articulate that, particularly to undergrads who are moving through often you know, multiple disciplines in a day. And 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 it is my other problem with ed tech, right? Because we treat it then like. One of the, one of the moves that's driving me nuts the most right now is this idea that if we make the learning management system, everyone's class look the same right now while everyone te- is teaching online.
0: Oh, don't right? go there. Don't, yeah. don't, you're go, don't go there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it will, it will then help them.
0: Oh, and, and I want to no. argue
1: the opposite that yeah. actually the more different <laughs> that it looks, it will help them understand the discipline they're sitting in. It shouldn't look the same. My that physics class should not like look like my English class, like they mm-hmm. right? They shouldn't. Yes. Because otherwise, how they understand what? Then the only identity offered to them is school, a schooled identity, and not the identity of the field. Oh. That's that's the thing. that makes me nervous. It's like, well, if it all mm-hmm. looks the same, then basically they're just doing
0: school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I want to ask you about the intersection between that idea and informal practice. So how if informal practice is one of the things that grounds us in our discipline and helps students, you know, become the historian, the mathematician, the the journalist, right. how are you feeling the technology has has shifted or restricted the access to that informal practice?
1: Yeah, I I think it it goes back to and I and I understand the impulse on the part of the administration or say uh, someone who's doing instructional design to want to offer a menu, right? Of here are the tools that our campus offers. We vetted these tools for things like accessibility and privacy and security. I understand the need to to do that, right? And yet. <laughs> We almost need, you know, categories of those lists that are like, these are the things that come out of the sciences and these are the things that come out of the humanities and these are the things. And I'm not seeing kind of that nuanced, you know, approach um, mm-hmm. to thinking about tool use. And I, again, I think we have to go. I don't know why we're resistant to just have students use the thing we use. And for, <laughs> some, for, some, for some people, that might be email. You know, Right? right? Like, I, I don't know if it's also this desire, I'm supposed to do something fancy, you know, or I'm mm-hmm. supposed to use and maybe that I have a colleague who gave a great talk about the affordance of being late to the game. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of like holding back to not because I'm always like, let's try it. And yeah. there's a little there is an affordance to kind of waiting. So I yeah, I well, worry Scott, about the long list of things to choose from. Yeah, and Scott, did you, I know what you're gonna say. Scott, I was just gonna say, to yeah, start. Scott.
0: <laughs> Scott McCloud talks about, um, well, first of all, the responsibility of leadership yeah. to, you know, demarginalize um, technology and you know the consumer economy and and the politics and and all all those right. sorts of things. Right. But I loved what you said in the blog about. Um, you know, we haven't done that. We haven't afforded ourselves. There's I think when I when I talked to him um for the podcast that just dropped last week, yeah. you can count on one hand the number of universities that have leadership programs in education that have a technology piece that require folks who are studying educational leadership to to learn the technology and and you wrote about that also that rather than learning how to navigate and make these decisions about the tools and the platforms, you say instead we <laughs> invited people to work in sandboxes behind schooled walls in the yeah. name of being safer or more accessible. Yeah, yeah. So uh,
1: this is really happening on our campus right now. That um, if you use and I don't I don't actually use very many of the campus tools, except for Google suite of apps. Um, But the fear is that if you use something that's not, uh, you know, checked by the campus, that somehow you're going to put your students at risk of accessibility and privacy and security. And, Mm -hmm. and my frustration around that is that we didn't teach anybody those things for real, Like we didn't really help people vet (laughs) for accessibility and privacy and security. And you can make something inaccessible in a campus LMS. If you upload it as a JPEG, for example, instead of a PDF, it is not readable by a screen reader for a student who needs that. So we're also giving this false sense that, oh, I've put it in my LMS, so therefore it's accessible. And it's not. It's still a human move that has to be made. Or you'll see faculty do crazy things like, share students photos emails and phone numbers with everybody in the class without permission in the lms not thinking about security (laughs) and privacy so it it doesn't it's not doing what people hope the tool alone is not going to do it we really need uh we need people to understand just how the web works right how the internet works um would be would be helpful for, for everybody.
0: (laughs) I, I'm laughing, but you didn't mean it in a sarcastic way. And that's why it's so funny. Like you are real life saying, we need to understand the internet. It's not being funny at all. No,
1: I, I've, I'm watching, you know, it's, it's painful to, to watch. And I think it's a, it goes back to a, a trust of faculty in the same way that we worry that we won't trust our students. Maybe it's about trusting faculty because I'll hear people say, well, they they're not ready for that. They, as if the LMS or something like it is a training wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, it just makes people feel like they don't know how to do it because right. <laughs> it's so mm-hmm. clunky or it's whatever. It makes everybody feel like, well, then I must not be cut out for this. Knowing how, yeah. How is this tech thing work? Um, it would be better if we gave them some options to work with the the real things that exist in the world in order to help our students work with the real things that exist in the world. So
0: (laughs) we're kind of dancing around this, this other question that I have that I want to make sure to ask you, Um, because we're kind of talking a little bit right now about both embracing platforms for learning and resisting platforms for learning and, and platform itself, meaning a couple of different things. So a platform could be the acceptable L- LMS of a district, like you know Teams or Schoology or Google right, Classroom right. or Canvas or Blackboard, or I mean, it could be the actual platform. But I'm also thinking, you know, broader than that, a platform for learning might be something more pedagogical than than yeah. an LMS. So I'm I'm interested for you um, to think around that with me. What what it looks like to both embrace and resist yeah. platforms for learning and what that means. So I um, rely a lot
1: on the work at Hybrid Pedagogy. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jesse Stommel and Sean yes. Michael Morris's work, right? Yep. Um, and they wrote this great blog. It's been a while now. I'd have to look. It's been a couple of years, two or three years um, about resisting ed tech. Um, and particularly they talk about Turnitin in there, but really they're, they're talking about ed tech overall. And they have these And we could link, you know, in the resources, if you'd like, I can share this. Um, They have some really good questions for evaluating um, tool use that you can ask yourself, you know. And one of the questions, I'll just, you know, as one example, one of the things when I'm thinking about any platform or thinking about a platform, a basic question would be, what is this structure, platform, whatever, saying about my relationship with students? So how is it mediating my relationship with students? Does it start with the premise that students are not to be trusted? I don't want to use that platform. Does it start with the premise that this is a place for collaboration and we're going to do some work together? Oh, I might be interested in that platform. So Mm. if you look at the Proctorios and the Turnitins and the whatever, the, the basic relationship you're setting up there with the learner is I don't trust you and I'm going to find ways to surveil and make sure you aren't doing something wrong. I'm not as interested in those something like, I don't know, not that, you know, there's, a, I'm going to be the first to say it, there's a, there's a good and evil in all of this. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It's not yeah. like this one's great. and This one's not, I don't mean it that way, but it is, you know, I am thinking through like, is this a space, for example, where we can write together and, and for all the, just as many people listening to your podcast might be like Google, you know, maybe Google's bad too. But Google Docs do let me write with someone in a way that's not um, hierarchical, right? Like, we are just both on this page together, writing something, giving feedback to each other. Um, And so it's set up for that. It's designed for that, not designed for uh, particularly surveilling, right, or
0: or trust. So yeah. My favorite thing that I hear you saying, and I know I come to it with my own background, but my favorite thing that I hear you saying is that we need to look at platforms for learning, whether they're analog or digital, that privilege relationship. Yes. Yes.
1: Because learning is hard. <laughs> learning yes. stuff is really hard. And and think about it, I think if people think through any time they left a community, it's because they didn't, one, feel like they had anything to contribute. Like, why am I here? Like, no one seems to care what I think or what I'm doing. Right. And so it, the relationship is like, and the identity, those two things are a huge part of feeling like I can learn this or I can do this, you know, back to mm-hmm. your, you know, the doing thing, like, can I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, to me, that's big, that's a big crucial part Love of that. design, you know, educational design.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to try to land the plane. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I I ask this question to to everyone, um, because it's a complete free for all. Like you can stay on topic, you can go off topic. Um, but I, when I was teaching in the K twelve schools, it was a couple of years before shifting to Common Core, and there was a lot of tension in the building. And when I get stressed, I read because I, I feel like information is That's power and right. knowledge is, is power. So I was reading every yes. book I could get my hands on about, you know, common core English language arts because I was an English language arts teacher. And I yes. just, I would come to PLC with with stacks and I was always sending quotes out. And one of my colleagues became annoyed with that habit and said, you know, it's just going to be the same thing. I've been here for 30 years we're going to, it's the same standards. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Stop reading. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) How would you have reacted or responded?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, So, I mean, there's,
0: there is a little,
1: right? Like think about the times we've told students like, you have to have an original idea, and I'm often like, there isn't one. Like, <laughs> give it up. It's all. It's all a remix. <laughs> Everything's a remix. So I have to say, I do kind of follow this. Like, yeah, there. It's just a mashup or a remix of a previous idea. Um, the way that manifests for me, and this maybe this will be a off topic, but the way that manifests for me is someone who thinks about literacy, and I know you'll get this, is. Ev- you know people are constantly scared about teenagers literacy uses right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. for misuses ed-
0: they're scared of the mis- misuses that's right and
1: <laughs> and and whenever we introduce a new way to read and write you know we move from the you know whatever the slate and the chisel to the printing press or the pen and ink and we move to computers mm-hmm. and we move to smartphones or whatever we get scared again that these teenagers won't know how to do the thing that we know how to do, which is so connected to their identity. I wish everybody just stopped that. And so yeah. th- to me that those arguments are not, the talk about there's nothing new under the sun, like Socrates was worried about writing. You know, he thought it would be the downfall of humanity because mm-hmm. we would lose our memory and these texts would just tumble about and anybody could say anything. <laughs> um, so, so, so to me, there is some of those, none of the, nothing's new under the sun, the arguments have been the same arguments at the same time. um, I can't throw my hands up in the air and just be like, well, it's just the way it is. Or that's the way it's always been. Or there's no reason because of the remix element of it or the mashup element. There's still a, the hope there is in the innovation of the idea, right. Or the making it better. So why why you might turn Uh. to reading or I might turn to reading, right. Is because yeah, but couldn't we still make it better? (laughs) it might be the same idea but can't I innovate or iterate off of it maybe that's our design thinking you know stuff coming in there too Wow,
0: I know it's pretty annoying for other people that's (laughs) (laughs) the tenacity (laughs) but I love that I'm gonna figure this out (laughs) I love that thank you okay so tell me and tell the Edmoves readers what are you working on right now what what's moving you what's exciting you
1: yeah i'm uh, I'm working with one of my grad students on um and actually this came out of the science work in some ways too I'm looking at the role of artifacts in classrooms so my students make things um, not so composing broadly defined right every two weeks they make something that represents the learning in that class so they might make an original slam poetry, they might make a blog, they might make a film, they might make a piece of art, they make something that represents, here's what I know. And what I'm trying to understand with this grad student is getting at cultural ways of knowing that I would miss because my course is dipped in whiteness, you know? So what <laughs> am I missing that is emerging in these artifacts that might not have been there if I'd had just given a scripted prompt, for example? So I had a heritage course for heritage learners uh, and speakers, and we played a lot with language diversity and celebrating language diversity. And uh, they wrote essays, but every two weeks they created something. So the graduate students are helping me think through what's coming up in terms of, Latinx identities in these, in yeah. these artifacts. So I'm having a blast. Like that part has been, I'm just learning a ton, learning a ton about my students and learning from these grad students and really enjoying it.
0: So I think you yeah. just t- titled um, our next podcast conversation. It's going to be called <laughs> dipped in whiteness. And yeah. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to talk about um, rhetoric and writing and yeah. the language that we let our students use or not use based on yeah. the in whiteness.
1: Whiteness. Oh, that's good. It's good. Wonderful. Timely.
0: Be timely. <laughs> Kim Jackson, thank you so much for being with us today. What a pleasure. Thanks for having a conversation me. Conversation with you. What a really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and I hope you learned a few new moves. To help build our community, please subscribe to the podcast. You can share it on your media, maybe tag some friends and colleagues. You may also enjoy my blog, which is published at edmoves.com. Season one continues next week. I can't wait to be with you again.